morning. God bless you all. It's great to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Still feels rather strange, if I'm honest. Um, but it's a blessing and a privilege, and we thank God that we have the technology that allows us to do this. So, if you cast your mind back eight weeks, uh, a lifetime ago, you'll remember that we last saw Paul and Silas released from prison in Philippi. Uh, they'd cast a spirit of divination out of a slave girl, and they'd led a jailer to Christ, having saved him uh, from literally falling on his own sword when he thought they'd escaped. And they'd have an apology from the city magistrates who had imprisoned and beaten them without trial, and they were then asked to leave the city. Uh, Paul and Silas spent some final moments with Lydia, their host, and the converts in Philippi, and we are going to catch up with them as they're about to begin the next leg of their missionary journey, the 90-plus mile trek to Thessalonica. So this is Acts 17 and verses 1 to 9. Paul and Silas then travelled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. But some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. We thank you, God, for your word. Please bless our ears as we listen and help us understand. But on their way to Thessalonica, Paul and Silas would have walked along the Via Egnatia, which is a Roman road built in the second century BC, a couple of hundred years before this journey took place. And you know that Roman roads are famously straight? Well, not this one. It wiggled around west to east, starting on the west coast of what is now Albania, and finishing in modern-day Istanbul, which is in Turkey. The parts of the Via Egnatia still exist today, and with its cobbled walkway, it would have been great for horses, um, not so much today for motor cars. Paul and Silas's journey took them east to west, and on the way they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, which are both to the east of Thessalonica. 
Amphipolis is still around, and some of the remains of the ancient Greek and Roman city are visible. Apollonia is mostly gone, though there's a nearby village with the same name, interesting fact. Thessalonica is very much still there. It's the second largest city in Greece. It's got a population of over a million, and it was already significant in the time of the Gospels, and it became a major centre of Christianity. Now, Acts 17 verse 1 reads, Paul and Silas then travelled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Poor Amphipolis and Apollonia. For both these towns, this is their only mention in the entire Bible. And they've had this powerhouse team of evangelists go right through their midst and keep walking. Hey, Paul and Silas, what about us? Now, because the Bible doesn't say anything about what happened in these towns, we can't fill in the blanks. But all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. So what useful teaching can we take from Paul and Silas just passing through these towns? Remember, as we've seen through Acts Acts so far, they're constantly seeking direction from God. They're looking to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 16.6, for example, it says, next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. So there we have an instance where we know for certain that God was saying, no, not there. It's entirely possible and common for God to give us a negative instruction. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't take liberties with my name. Don't be joined with an unbeliever. So maybe God specifically told Paul and Silas not to stop along the way to Thessalonica. Maybe. Taking a slightly different tack, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in Luke as he's sending them out to evangelize. Luke 10 verse 4. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Get on with the job, guys. So perhaps Paul and Silas were under instruction not to preach in these towns or maybe they had a clear message to go to Thessalonica with haste. Or maybe when they got to these towns, their reputations preceded them and they turned away, sent packing. The townsfolk don't want that Christian nonsense in their towns. So what happened in Amphipolis and Apollonia, we don't know. Whatever it was, God in his wisdom saw fit not to give us details, and maybe there are no details, in his written word. But what we do know is that Paul was utterly single-minded in his pursuit of the gospel. He's headed straight for Thessalonica, and as usual, he's going straight to the central place of worship, the synagogue, to get on with his job. Verses two to three. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved 
that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. As you hear that story, as you read it, do you have a picture in your mind of that scene? Paul, the leaders of the synagogue, the crowd. Something to bear in mind that we've perhaps not considered much so far. The synagogue is not the temple. They're two different things. So the temple, that was the permanent, internationally central place of worship. Priests were in charge. There would be prayers, hymns, sacrifices, the whole thing. The temple in Jerusalem was a profoundly important, holy place for the Jews. They'd go on pilgrimages from miles away to worship there. Synagogues were a little different. There were more of them, one in every major Jewish town or city, and they were less a place of full-on worship and more a place of assembly and study. It's not a great analogy, but think about the difference between a traditional church building, the church being akin to the temple, and the church hall, the hall being like the synagogue. So in the synagogue, people would gather to read scriptures, to study and discuss them, to say prayers. Synagogues had rulers, not priests, and these rulers might be rabbis, teachers. So it's probably fair to say that the synagogue was less formal than the temple. There would still be structure, but perhaps not as rigid. And it's the synagogues that Paul's going to, the assemblies, where people gather to discuss the word of God and what it means. So he's not going there to disrupt worship. He's going there to do exactly what the synagogue was for, to study the scriptures and talk about their meaning and application. Now, if I were to barge into a meeting at some other church, or if I, I muscled my way into a meeting of the town council, Are they going to let me speak? Well, no, I have no standing there. They don't know me. What right would I have to speak, to dare to teach them? So how did Paul get away with it? What was it about Paul that meant he had a platform, an audience? I suppose the most obvious answer is curiosity. People who'd heard about the spread of Christianity would want to know more. And here's the horse's mouth. But I don't think it's just that. Listen to what Paul says about himself, about his credentials. This is Philippians 3, verses 4b to 6. If indeed, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. A real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. And he then goes on to point out that none of this gets him special favours with God. In fact, he describes it all as rubbish. But... It does get him something in the synagogues. So he has seven strong reasons to be heard. One, he was circumcised exactly in accordance with the law. This tells us that not only was he in good standing with the law, so were his parents. He's from a respectable family. 
and that matters in his society. Two, he's an Israelite. He's one of them. He's not a Gentile offcomer. He has a place in the community. Three, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the tribes considered most faithful. The two faithful tribes were Judah and Benjamin. And Jesus was from Judah, Paul from Benjamin. Four, a real Hebrew. He has lineage, heritage. He's 100% Jewish through and through, going back generations. His Jewish name, Saul, testifies to his authenticity. Five, he's a Pharisee. He'd been particularly and pedantically concerned with holding fast to the law and the prophets. He was well-versed in the scriptures, outstanding among his fellow countrymen. Six, he zealously persecuted the church. When the threat of Christianity arose, which the Jewish community saw as heresy, because they dared to claim that Jesus was the, the Messiah, Paul had been right there on the front lines, fighting against these evil missionaries. He'd been violent in his pursuit of religious purity. Seven, he was fully righteous as far as the law was concerned. He kept all of it, made every sacrifice, tithed scrupulously, observed all the big commandments and the little ones too. I repeat, as all that, as far as salvation is concerned, is rubbish. It gets you nowhere. But in front of those present in the synagogue, well, that's an impressive list of qualifications. Yes, they may have been curious, but also they couldn't deny that here was a formidable man to whom they ought to show respect. So every synagogue he visits, they listen to Paul. Many of them don't hear what he's saying, but they listen. And the point of this is that we serve God in the way that he equips us. Paul was equipped to speak in the synagogue right down to the sins he committed against Christians. Now, that doesn't justify the sin. God doesn't condone it, but it's part of the makeup of Paul, and God uses him. How has God equipped you? What's unique about your history, your past, your training, your social circles, your friendship groups, your family, your knowledge, your special talents, that God will use. We, we don't need to look at Paul and say, wow, I wish I could do that. We look to Jesus and say, let me serve you. Back to Acts 17, verse 4. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is having an impact. He went to this synagogue three times, reasoning with the people there, and as a result, many have been persuaded. Now, let's be clear about this. Persuasion is not the same as conversion. But for many people, that's where it starts. They're persuaded to come to church. They're persuaded to sit through a gospel sermon. They're persuaded there might be some truth in this message. And throughout that persuasion, the Holy Spirit's working until in many cases, that persuasion becomes revelation. They not only hear the truth, they believe 
and accept it. And the power of Christ's sacrifice, as he works in their hearts, transforms them from death to life. That might, might be you right now. Are you persuaded? God is working in your heart. Having been persuaded, Luke writes, these members of the synagogue, devout Gentiles and leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And there's a lot behind that word, joined. Some translations say consorted. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, writes, they not only associated with them as friends and companions, but they gave themselves to their direction as their spiritual guides. They've started, these people have started, to surrender their will to the truth. Do you have a spiritual guide? Not someone who takes the place of Jesus or the Bible, but somebody who's a bit further ahead on the path than you, who can warn you about what lies ahead, who can cheer you on, who can show you the way in which the gospel has comforted them. We should never worship anyone but God. But a human, Christian, spiritual guide, a parent, a pastor, a wise friend is invaluable as we work out our salvation. I'm certain that Paul and Silas were important figures on the journey to faith for many of these people. It's not wrong to have people you respect in the faith. It's wrong to obsess over them, to treat them as infallible, only God's perfect. But it's okay, wise even, to have a mentor you can trust. Acts 17 verses 5 to 9, the last part of this passage. Some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd. Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted. And now they are here disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They are all guilty of treason against Caesar, but they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the, the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond, and then they released them. Do we provoke that sort of reaction? Now, don't mishear me. Paul also says... Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone, Romans 12, 18. We don't set out to incite a riot or to provoke jealousy. But are we having such an impact on our communities that those who want to crush the gospel rise up against us? That's a challenging thought, isn't it? We'd far rather live without conflict or suffering, I suspect. But if you look through the Bible, you'll see time and again how God uses circumstances, takes people through circumstances of conflict or distress to bring about phenomenal transformation to work his purposes. The selling of Joseph into slavery resulted in him becoming the governor of Egypt and saving nations from starvation during a time of famine. The enslavement of the entire Jewish nation under Pharaoh 
resulted in a miraculous rescue of the entire population. First, they crossed the Red Sea to escape from Pharaoh, and 40 years later, they crossed the River Jordan into the Promised Land. And this became their iconic moment, passing through the water from slavery and death to salvation and life, which is symbolized to this day in baptism. And when the Romans and Jews rose up against Jesus Christ, flailed, flayed his body and put him to death, just when the devil thought he'd won, that was the very means through which God smashed death. That's exactly why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 to 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. If the city is ever in uproar against us, if our homes are attacked, or if the whole country has to go into isolation, these are the means through which God works. These are the stories we'll later tell of how our faith was tested and how we saw God prevail, his love and justice and mercy and power demonstrated how Jesus Christ wins. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that sharing the gospel will offend people, that you will lose friends. It does, and you will. But that's a passing momentary affliction compared to the joy of seeing one sinner saved, compared to the hope that we have. What hope? Let me tell you about that hope. Remind us of this glorious future we now inherit from Hebrews 12. I'm going to read the whole chapter and then I'll close. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful, from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given up your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, as we endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you, treating us as his own children. Whoever heard of a child 
who is never disciplined by his father. If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means you're illegitimate and not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall, but become strong. Work at living with peace, in peace with everyone, and work at living a holy life, for those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. They staggered back under God's command. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. Moses, Moses himself was so frightened at the sight that he said, I'm terrified and trembling. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to countless thousands of angels in a joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth, but now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshipping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. And I say to you, whatever you do, 
take the time, take the time to take nourishment into your spirits. Take the time to do that in whatever way you are most comfortable, but also in some of the ways where you're not comfortable. Sing praises out loud. Read God's word. Do it every day. Don't become unhealthy or starved due to lack of feeding your spirit. We thank God. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the peace that you bring us that passes understanding. We thank you, Lord, that you said to us, don't let our hearts be troubled. Take heart. You have overcome the world. You have already overcome COVID-19. There is nothing here that's not under your authority, oh God. We bless you. We praise your name. And Lord, as we return once more to our daily lives, to these new routines, I ask that you bless each one of us, all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. That you comfort us, Lord. That you help us through times that for many of us are really, really difficult and challenging. For me, Lord, you know I struggle with this. But we are your family, God, and you care for us. And we thank you for that. Amen.